It is May 9th, 2010. Uh, this message is called Principled Stand. A principled stand. It goes with the message from last week. Last week we covered I will not yield. You remember that when we looked at the message last week, it had to do with fear and intimidation. When you have an obvious enemy outside the walls of your city, what you're supposed to do, how you handle it. Sennacherib stood outside the walls of Jerusalem and he said unimaginable things. He had chains upon former kings. He had impaled royal officials. And now he stood outside the city of God and said, nobody's going to deliver you from my hands. Look at all of the others. What a terrible, difficult situation. And yet those are the situations when men and women of God get to see the great salvation of our God. Hezekiah spread out his problem before the Lord. He acknowledged that it was real. He didn't deny it or just refuse to receive it. It was there. It was outside of his wall. And he took his stand and said, Lord, for the sake of your glory, for your name, would you deliver us? I just want to remind you that when you have problems, spread them out before the Lord. Don't deny they're there. Don't act like they don't exist. If it is a real problem and it is there facing you, bring it right before the Lord. Spread it out before Him. And say, for the sake of your great name, Lord, because I belong to you, deliver me. And everyone will know that it was you who delivered me. There was a particular word that I hoped would stick in your spirit. It came from 2 Kings 19.30. Don't turn there. We're going to be somewhere else. I'll quote it to you. And I, I almost never lie when I preach. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. I believe that God has been depositing in the people in this church and in His body worldwide. He's been making a deposit. Something that is not obvious. Something that you don't always see. But in your most difficult hours, when Sennacherib is outside your walls and there is a very difficult threat in your life, what he has deposited in you begins to rise up and bear fruit above. Without the pressure, without the difficulty, you never have a chance to take your stand. And the last thing as we recap last week's message that I wanted you to know is what a difference a day can make. I mean, they went from looking as if they would be completely captive to this foreign king to completely delivered in less than 24 hours. What an amazing difference. Your circumstances can change. But as I talk about last week, something that I didn't get a chance to share with you that we want to do this week is attacks are not always that obvious. I mean, I live for those moments, honestly. I've been fortunate enough to have a gun pulled on me several times for the gospel. I've had the opportunity to stand with a knife to my throat for the gospel. I have to tell you that the power of God comes over you in such a special way, there is no concern. It's not even hard. There is a more deadly, more subtle, more potent kind of attack that is quite uh, more subtle, quite a bit more subtle. And it has to do with an erosive force that is all around us all of the time. It has to do with the pressure of conformity to a wicked society. See, if somebody came in your house and demanded to take your children, you would fight. You would do whatever it took to resist them because God called you to protect your babies. But somehow or another, we miss the subtle little messages that our television shows, that our schools, that everything around us are doing that are stealing our children. And because it's subtle, we don't rise to the occasion quickly. We don't notice right away. The devil is not always a full-on frontal attack. In fact, once he does that and loses, 
Most of the time, he begins to work in more subversive ways. I wanted to talk to you about that kind of thing this morning. There is a sustained cultural battle that is warring against your faith and trying to erode the character of Christ that is in you. When we think of history, it is important to realize in English this is a compound word. And it basically is his story. History is not set outside of the Bible, nor is the Bible set outside of history. Jesus was not born in a vacuum. He chose a specific place and time. He chose a specific location, a culture, a people to be represented through. God did this on purpose for a reason, and history is his backdrop. If you were in school and you were bored to death when you studied Western civilization, if you were bored to death when you looked at Oriental and Occidental cultures and all of those things, and you hoped just to pass the test and move on, it's because we failed to recognize the significance of his story within history. And all of a sudden you begin to realize that all mankind is moving in one direction. All mankind is being pushed to make a choice. Will your king be the leader of your nation? The leader of a united nations, or will your king be this Jewish Messiah from an obscure place? This is an important place to be. Now, all Christians say Jesus is our king, but I want to tell you the kingdom that you live in is defined by who you obey the most. I could claim to be a German, but I don't live in Germany. Uh, I'm not particularly obedient to the chancellor in Germany. I don't follow the German laws. How German would you say I am? you ever talk to somebody about their family history and they'll say something like, I'm 116th Irish? What does that mean? <laughs> what? Well, like saying, I'm about three quarters pregnant. <laughs> Look at uh, Luke 2. It's important to know, before we read Luke 2, while you're on your way there. 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 That some of our more famous stories in history are the backdrop for the gospel. How many of you in, in school had to read some of William Shakespeare's works? Good. I hope you were as enthralled with it as I was. I slept through most of it. But later it became important when God gave me eyes to see. One of his most famous works, Julius Caesar, the play where you might have learned some of the things like Beware of the Ides of March or A Tu Brute, you know, a, a classic story of betrayal. The gospel story doesn't pick up with Julius Caesar, but it immediately follows his reign. And something that's important to know is that Julius Caesar was deified. He was declared to be God by a Roman poet named Virgil in the year 42. They said that he ascended to heaven and that they saw it because they watched a comet that was him ascending. They said, well, why on earth would that be important? It's important because the gospel stories mention another kind of ascension. In Luke 24, there was an ascension of Jesus. In Acts 1, he was taken aloft in the clouds by angels. So the ascension story had a counterfeit that went before it. Isn't that interesting? Before Jesus ever ascended, before the Gospels were ever written, there was already an ascension story in history. And the Romans were talking about it. Why would the devil do something like that? His idea is to get some of the truth and mix it with enough lie that you cannot tell the difference. 
This is why most sincerely devilish things don't come from the church of Satan. They don't come from a man named Anton LaVey or a satanic Bible. Most sincerely devilish things come from well-meaning people who only have a hair of the truth and about 99% their opinion. And they lead you astray. In Luke 2, we hear something. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. Before I move any further, Caesar Augustus. Caesar became a family name. Augustus means the revered one, the august one. In William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar was a kid named Octavian. Some points in history they called him Octavius. He's just a snot-nosed kid that watched Mark Antony and Cassius and all of the guys fight over Julius's empire. But see, because he was an adopted son and a son-in-law, figure that one out, an adopted son and a son-in-law, Romans were always interesting with their marriages. And Julius Caesar was declared to be God. Guess what that made Augustus Caesar? The son of God. Let me read this a little bit in Luke, then I'll come back to it. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Before Jesus was ever born, a guy named Caesar Augustus, or Augustus Caesar, was born. And before Jesus was ever called the Son of God, the ruler of the known world took the title Son of God. That's really interesting because Luke one thirty five announces Jesus' birth as the Son of God. So we have a point in history where within the same empire that was ruling the world, we have somebody who is claiming to be the Son of God, ruling from marble and ivory palaces with servants at their disposal and a wicked lifestyle. And we have an obscure Jewish corner of the world within the Roman Empire. A man born under what his townspeople probably thought were at least suspect uh, circumstances. And he would be a Jewish rabbi, a carpenter's son, not even formally trained. Can you understand what a vast disparity there is between these two pictures? I promise we're moving on from the birth of Jesus. My point here is that Christianity has always existed among these stark contrasts. Have you ever thought, man, if I lived during Jesus' day, it'd be easier to follow him? I mean, if I had seen the miracles, if I had been there, if I, was, if I got to meet Paul, then it would be easier. I assure you it was no easier. In fact, the contrast might have made it a little harder. Watch this. The day that Augustus Caesar was born, anybody want to guess what month of the year that fell in? December. The month that Jesus was born in? Probably not December. Most likely springtime. You know that the Romans celebrated Augustus Caesar's birth with 12 days of Advent? 
Isn't that amazing? The king of the universe is born in a manger, while the king of the known world's birth is being celebrated by poets with 12 days of Advent. This is the situation in which Christianity was birthed. Watch this. The poets proclaimed peace and joy to the world because Augustus would certainly bring universal peace to the world as God's son. You know, every administration in the United States has had certain taglines, you know. Recently we've heard a lot about change, and other times we've heard other things. His tagline for his empire was universal peace. Catholic peace. Isn't that amazing? And yet the Prince of Peace is born into that scenario. The slogan that he put on coins, and there's a book in our library by a guy named Ethelbert. Yeah, I'd be upset if my mom named me that too. Stour. <laughs> and he shows pictures of coins with Augustus' picture on it, and it says there is no name except Augustus by which men can be saved. In Acts 4.12, Peter and John say the same thing about Jesus. I want you to imagine, though, that you live in an area where all the billboards say there is no name to be saved except Augustus. There is no uh, peace except with Augustus. There is no Son of God except Augustus. And now you're looking at a guy who is teaching, and you're watching him walk around, and you know he's a carpenter's son. He might never have worn anything that was expensive. How hard would that be? How hard would it be if you were a follower of this man? And everywhere you went, the political jingles of the day that would want to stick in your head didn't say that Jesus was the name to be saved by. They said Augustus was. Could you slip at some point? Have you ever had that moment where you knew you were going to prophesy in church, your heart's beating fast, and you're trying to get it right, and you open your mouth to speak, and you are terrified that you're going to get the words twisted? You're going to get it wrong? Either you've never prophesied or you're lying to me now. <laughs> What was it like in the first century for these guys? I want to talk to you about the cult of emperor worship for a minute, but I want to get quickly into the word as well, so I'm torn. Let me, let me tell you just this then. In Acts 10, around the 43rd verse, there's a declaration made that forgiveness of sins is found in no name except Jesus. And this is a time when Peter is speaking to a Roman soldier in his household named Cornelius, right? A Roman soldier that came from uh, imperial armies. That's interesting because during that day, there was a cult of emperor worship going on, and we had moved on from Augustus, but Augustus had a really unique cult of emperor worship. He allowed his priests to forgive sins. That was unusual. Usually only the gods could do that, but since Augustus was God... He gave the priest the power to forgive sins for a price. Isn't that interesting? Has there ever been another time in history you could buy an indulgence? Come with me to Luke 3. See, you didn't have to turn far. How hard was that? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, did you know that was in Texas? During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, 
The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Listen to how specific that is. Do you hear that Luke, the great historian, is working to place the gospel story within history? How many times do we read over those names and they mean nothing to us? But does it mean something if Caiaphas is a wicked high priest? Does it mean something if Herod has a title called King of the Jews and murdered children to prevent the real King of the Jews from coming? What is that cultural setting like? The difference between Sennacherib outside the walls of uh, Jerusalem with Hezekiah in this kind of battle is at some point you could look back and see Hezekiah and Sennacherib were an event. It was a story that happened somewhere in the past. The problem with these kind of battles is they wore on day in and day out so that some of Jesus' own followers doubted. The guy that we're about to read about, John, at times said, are you really the Messiah or should we expect another? There were so many voices out there saying, this is the way, there is the way. And the most powerful, well-funded, best-looking, everything claimed to be everything that Jesus claimed to be. Can you appreciate that? What would it be like when you got a kid who's, I don't know, seven or eight, and has learned to say, why, 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 why? And you're trying to teach about Jesus, who he can't see. And there's an emperor here that he can see. And the uh, propaganda of the day is painted on buildings and songs everywhere. All teach about this. Did the Christians face some serious problems? Of course they did. And we thought that our TV set was a modern invention of evil that uh, the world's never had to face before. Now, there's always been something like this. The Bible calls it a flood of dissipation. It's rushing in, trying to wash away what you know is true, little bit by little bit, so that you don't recognize it. This is why when the movie Psycho comes out, what was that, in the 50s, and there's a black and white shadow, and you don't even see blood, everybody is horrified. When the movie Jaws comes out, so many people were scared they closed beaches. But enough of those movies get progressively worse year after year that our children would laugh at them. They wouldn't begin to be scared by a movie like Psycho. Not at all, because they've seen Freddy Krueger and Saw and every other horrible thing. How does that happen? One guy said it was a frog in the kettle principle, that if you throw a frog in boiling water, he jumps out. But if you leave him in there and turn it up a degree at a time, he stays until his life is taken from him. And that is true. But that's probably not a new analogy to any of us. And yet we still sit in the water, don't we? There may be a time in your life, it may come at an obscure moment, when you simply have to take a more principled stand. See, I know this seems small to everyone else, but for me, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. I say, no. I don't want to read you about John the Baptist now, but I'll tell you this. He was a man who was called to get people to take a principled stand. He began to say, there's coming a time when these high mountains will be brought low. The low valleys will be brought high. There will be a complete rechanging, a shifting of the world order as you know it. And these guys that claim to be king in Rome and God on earth will be seen not to be gods. Now that's a great message as long as it happens within a month or two of saying it. But what happens when the Pax Romana goes on for a thousand years and you don't see it? 
All you see before you is the culture and empire of Rome and your king. You feel his presence but cannot see his form. This is a cultural war that has been raging for a very long time. And this is how the righteous live by faith. If we are supposed to trust something that we don't see and we know is there and act as if we believe it, even when we don't see it around us, if the definition of faith given to us in Hebrews is right, then it's necessary that there be visible outward pressure on us at all times, but a quiet, still, inward voice calling us to oppose it. And whether or not you do or don't shows which kingdom you choose to live in. There's a sharp contrast also between the Caesars. You have to imagine this one. God, God does have a bit of a sense of humor. Let's imagine Julius Caesar was God, right? And he ascended into the heavens. And then he says, oh, Augustus, this is, this is God's son. And they have all of these, uh, these slogans. Did Augustus bring peace to the world? No, not really. He brought military might to a few, subjugation to a lot more. Did he live forever? No, he died. In Tiberius, who was in power for most of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is another one that has a cult of emperor worship, but what happened to him? Is he still around somewhere? No, he also died. How about Caligula? They made a great movie about him. Really shows the man's character. He came and went. Then Claudius came and went. Then Nero, after killing most of the men that we love, he came and went. And you know, in one year, from 68 to 69, we had four Roman emperors, most of whom claimed to be God. At some point, people with eyes to see should be able to stand back and go, they all say they're God, but they disappear and their influence is gone from the earth. Maybe they're not really God. Doesn't that sound very obvious? How many times though, have you bought a magazine and thought that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie were the iconic figures of America? You wished you could be kind of like them. How many times have you gone to pay for a movie because something about the way a star carries himself is appealing to you? How many lives have crashed? How many of them OD every year? How many of them trade in their wives like cars because nothing will make them happy? and are so strung out on drugs they don't know where they are, and yet they are worshipped by millions. There's always been this kind of struggle going on between the obvious, the brash, that is always there eroding at you, and the quiet, gentle voice of the Holy Ghost saying, you must take a stand somewhere. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking practically, what do I do, Eric? I mean... Are you saying I shouldn't watch a TV? Are you saying I don't ride in a car? I should throw away the money that has uh, our government's impressions on it? I'm not telling you what to do with anything. What I am saying is that we should wrestle with these things. We need to realize that if we don't take a stand in some areas of our life, as the Holy Ghost shows us, slowly we become exactly like the world. Now we can all point to church examples where people have... I mean. Obviously, you're not Amish or you wouldn't be here. And I admire that the Amish do what they do. I mean, I really do. If God wanted that of me, I I would have no problem doing it. However, you can take such a stand against the principles of the world that you are not able to be a light to it in any way. You can call everything of the world wicked. There was a whole phase went through Christianity where people looked for owls in their houses and anything that might be demonic in any way. Friends, everything's been touched by the world. Everything. 
I always found it funny. People wanted to know whether I had these things on the backs of pictures in my houses, but they didn't care that they drove up in a car made by Buddhists. They didn't care that there was money in their pocket with Egyptian symbols on it. I'm neither saying that you need to go live in a bunker somewhere. Not saying that. Nor am I saying that you need to participate in the world. I'm saying with fear and trembling, we need to decide where we're going to take our stand. And that might look different for Stephanie than it does for Larissa. But everybody must come to these places. And if you've not felt the Holy Ghost rise up in you at some point until you walk out of a movie, you are not listening. If you've not felt the Holy Ghost say, you have this freedom, but I say no, not today. Not with these people. Not at this time. You are not listening. Because it is important. There is a battle of erosion going on all around us. Where I really wanted to focus today is on Ephesus. Ephesus is uh, a quintessential Greek city-state. And its day, it had about half a million people in the first century. Half a million people by the ancient world standards is a bunch. I mean, that is, that is giant. It's like Las Vegas of its day, if you will. A lot of biblical things happened during this time period. Towards the end of the first century, Titus rules. He's the guy that leveled Jerusalem. Following him, Domitian ruled. And in Ephesus, Domitian set up something. He set up his throne. It's called a Neochorus. He made a throne there for himself in Ephesus. This meant that all of the Ephesians had to live with a Roman emperor that didn't rule from Italy. He came and set up in their city. Acts 19 contains a story where Paul is in Ephesus. Do you remember? And the city of idol makers have riled up the crowd and what were they shouting? Great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. So the city of Ephesus was also the home of what the Romans called Diana and the Greeks called Artemis, a virginal goddess. The only goddess among the pantheon of Greek gods that had a celibate priesthood. The only ones. Isn't that interesting? A virginal goddess with a celibate priesthood. You know, you can go back in, in history, in Ephesus, you can dig down through the layers and strata of dirt, and you can actually find on temple rocks the time period where Diana's name was removed or Artemis' name was removed, and Mary was placed there. You can actually find that. See, these cultures are clashing all of the time, and sometimes the church accepts the culture of the world, and it's called syncretism. They simply adopt it as a Christian practice. If you know Jesus was not born in December, why do we worship and, and uh, practice Christmas in December? Well, because it's our culture. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying work these things out with fear and trembling. But you need to be able to acknowledge from time to time something that we know is wrong, we accept into our life, and it begins to erode away the truth. So that your children don't know that Jesus was not born in December. Do you understand the process I'm talking about? The more and more of this we accept, rather than the world being evangelized, what is happening is the church is being tainted with the world. You've heard these messages before, I know, but I think it's time that we revisit it. I mean, I really did. There was a warning that was given to the Ephesians. Why don't we turn to Acts 20? 
Look at verse 29. If you are beginning to discern the idea, oh my goodness, this pastor is anti-Catholic, I want you to understand that that's not quite the case. Uh, My ministry for years has focused on seeing Catholic folks liberated and Baptist folks liberated and charismatic folks liberated and Pentecostal folks liberated. I've not found any of the institutions that I'm particularly fond of. I'm very fond of Jesus. I believe that there is a spirit in the world that is forcing the church to conform to its image rather than be transformed by the power of God. Paul said the exact same thing to men and women who loved Jesus enough that they were killed in the arena to the tune of 50,000 a year some years. Listen to this, and it's in Acts 20, starting in verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Well, that's a statement in and of itself. Paul could say with a clear conscience there was no area of the will of God that he was not proclaiming with his life and his words. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So who is he talking to? The overseers in the church at Ephesus, a place that was about to face unimaginable pressure. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul on the Ephesian beach talking to men about this? I've told you for three years it's coming, and it is coming. It didn't happen in Paul's lifetime. Nero killed him. But you know, in the year 431, the church met in Ephesus, at least what was called the church at the time. And in the city where Paul was almost torn limb from limb, because the idolatrous worshippers of Artemis, the virginal goddess with the celibate priesthood, didn't like his message. In the city he was almost killed in, a church council takes place in 431 to decide whether or not Mary was the queen of heaven and mother of God. And they decided wrongly. Why do you think it happened in Ephesus? Because the culture in Ephesus was already used to accepting a virginal goddess with a celibate priesthood. And so right there in the 400s, we see a huge battle lost that has deceived a fifth of the world's population. Somewhere, saints, something has to rise up in us that says, I don't care how cultural it feels to you. It is wrong. Now, it's easy when we talk about history, when we speak of something in the past, as long as we're talking about somebody else somewhere else. But what about us? What happens in your life, in your workplaces, in your schools? What happens in our lives, in our neighborhoods? When do we ever take our stand and say, I don't care how cultural it feels. 
I love you with the love of God, but the Spirit of Christ in me will not allow me to participate in this. In this church, we talk a lot about freedom. I actually encourage you, during days in which other people are doing wicked things, to not go hide in your house, but go out and do godly things. I talk about freedom a lot, probably, maybe even too much. But having said that, there needs to be in you the ability to take a principled stand where sometimes you simply say, if you were in Christ, you cannot be associated with such things. Let's be honest. If we took a poll right now, don't raise your hands. <laughs> Have you watched a movie this year that you're ashamed of? This year, at some point during the movie, did the thought come to you, I shouldn't be watching this. And maybe it's not horrible, right? That makes it more subtle. But you know in your spirit, if Jesus is sitting there with you, I'm probably not going to finish this movie. And the more we do those kind of things, the more we begin to lose the ability to discern what is good from what is evil. It is eroding away our Christian character. And I want to remind you, I'm not advocating the easy way out. I'm not saying all of you go wrap yourselves in one giant denim cloth and go hide in the woods somewhere. I'm not saying that. I honestly feel like that's the easy way out. It's removing yourself from everything when Jesus is calling us to be a light in this world that is not of this world. Something about you must stand out to people. In fact, the breastplate of righteousness declares in your life, you get to a place where people say, don't even ask Darren. He won't do that. Everybody will get an invitation to a party but you. Everybody will get an email but you. Right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. These, these moments may be few in time, but they're so important. A man sends me an email for Easter. I've been witnessing to him for years, so I'm thinking that the Easter email must have something to do with Jesus. And I thought it would give me something to talk to him about. It was pornographic. An Easter email with bunnies painted on a woman's chest. I have an option right there. My inclination was just to let it go. I mean, he's lost anyway, sin or sin, dog's bark. But it was a moment where I needed to take a principal stand. Vendor of my company or not, you need to know, Mr. So-and-so, that's not okay with me. You make me sick. See, these moments come, and we have a chance to either deny Jesus or stand for him. And in today's church, where we're so conscious of not offending anyone. I think all too often we offend Jesus so that we don't offend them. Wow. Not only did this happen in Ephesus, but there are scripture after scripture of things like Paul tells his protege Timothy, who he's stationed in Ephesus, fight the good fight. He tells him to fight the good fight. If you're taking notes, that's 1 Timothy 1.18. And if it wasn't enough, he reminds him again at the end of the letter in the 6th chapter and 12th verse. Fight the good fight. That doesn't mean simply exist and be blessed. That's all you ever hear today is exist and be blessed. Your very best of everything right now, everything right now. Maybe that's what's wrong. 
is the church has begun to believe that the kingdom of God is about you getting what you want right now. That was nowhere in the early church's conception of what Christianity was. That was the other kingdom, the one that ruled from ivory palaces. They were the ones that if they needed something, they took it by sword. If they needed something, they purchased it. If they needed something, they used fear and intimidation to get it. But the people of God had to believe in a king that they could no longer see with their natural eyes and be sensitive enough to his voice that they could feel him moving them in a direction. And many times they waited years and years and some never received what they thought they needed then. Is your whole relationship with Jesus based on Him doing what you want when you want it? Because if that's the case, friends, you are the King and He is your servant. If He is sovereign... If he's not just your magic genie in a box or your Santa Claus in the sky that delivers your wish list to you, then you're willing to wait as long as it takes for whatever he tells you. How many of you have been encouraged by the Lord at some point this year? You can show hands for this one. At some point this year, you received some encouragement from the Lord. What if you went 20 years and the promise that you would have a son still hadn't happened? What if you're 40 years in a desert and the promise that you're going into that land still hasn't happened? What if you're 2,000 years and you still haven't seen the resurrection of the dead? See, some of these things we've learned to intellectually ascend to. We've learned to say, oh yes, we know it will be there. And yet, when we face funerals, when we face the death of our loved ones, we act like it's never going to occur. See, the world is having an effect on the church and somewhere you must take a principled stand. The early church historian Eusebius tells us that even the Apostle John spent his last days in Ephesus. Ephesus seemed to be the center of where a bunch was happening. Irenaeus tells us that John frequently combated the Nicolaitans. They abandoned the sound principles of the law. By the way, some people think that Nicolaitans came from the first deacon, Nicholas. Isn't that sad? How would you like to be known for a heretical group coming from your life? They abandon the sound principles of the law. They practice a separation between clergy and laity. You know what that is. That's when your pastor won't even let you in his house. That's when you talk with other ministers, but I mean, not with the congregation. They get to know you. They, they won't respect you. Really? Then your life is a sham and a facade. Most importantly... They compromised on issues of idolatry. They started in the faith, but over time, because there was such immense pressure upon them, they started to worship idols. Two of the churches in the book of Revelation addressed the Nicolaitans within the church. You want to guess where one of the churches being addressed was located? Ephesus. And Revelation 2.6, Jesus said, well, you do have this going for you guys. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. That's good. We're going to read that later. He says, I'm still telling you, you return to the beginning and do the things you did at first. What a profound message for the church today. When you first fell in love with the Lord, were you timid about doing things that even looked worldly? I found myself telling my son, he said, Dad, it's not wrong that we do that. Why are you not doing that? Right? Doesn't matter what it is, but you might be able to guess. 
I said, the word says to avoid even the appearance of evil. He said, but it's not evil, Dad. I said, I know, but that person misunderstands and thinks it is, and I care enough about them to not do it. He goes, okay. It's good enough for him. But we face those kind of choices every day, all day. And sometimes we need to err on the side of caution. I want to talk to you about Ephesus, and then we're going to jump right into the Word, because I'm going to run out of time. This world headquarters for the emperor Domitian. And Domitian reigned from about 81 to 96. So that tells you this is the end of what the academic world calls the apostolic era. But I'm going to tell you the apostolic era has never ended. He chose Ephesus for his neochorus. Ephesus was a place where he took the Greek pantheon of gods, some 24 major gods, and he put his throne on top of their heads. He wanted to show the whole Greek world that he was a Roman emperor that was above all the Greek pantheon of gods, including Zeus. He had a little bit of an ego, didn't he? He had a daddy. His daddy was named Vespasian. Vespasian had been wounded in battle, and the historians say it looked like a mortal wound. But after a few days, he recovered. Maybe the best thing that is the most well-preserved in Ephesus is something called an agora. Not an al-gora. <laughs> it's tempting, I know. <laughs> an agora. An agora is a marketplace. And the marketplace has one entrance and one exit. That's unusual, right? A lot of you ladies wouldn't shop in a place like that. You need to be able to see the street. And at the entrance, to enter, to buy or sell, you had to worship Domitian. Well, how could we know whether anybody... I mean, Mike just went there, Nolan just went there, Dustin just went there. How can we know which of the three of them actually worshipped? Well, I know what we'll do. We will let them burn some incense to Domitian, and then we will take the ashes and put it on their forehead. This is not a joke. You can actually find... I've got the books in my library. So if you didn't have the mark of the ashes on your forehead, you could not buy or sell in the Ephesian Agora. Is any of this sounding a little bit familiar to you? Yes. The same spirit has always been in the world. I'm not suggesting that the events of Revelation were fulfilled in the first century. I'm not in that camp. But what I'm telling you is the same satanic desire that tried to supplant Jesus with a predecessor who was the Son of God and all of the slogans that would later be applied to Jesus had been applied to him, the events in Revelation, those, the spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world a long time and is in the world now. And he has the same goals now as he did then. Can you imagine the pressure upon Ephesians? Where are you going to go buy? Where are you going to go get food for your babies? What would you do to keep your baby fed? I mean, after all, Jesus wants my baby fed, huh? Maybe he overlooks those ashes on my forehead. Couldn't you feel that way? Isn't that worldly wisdom? To us, it looks so obvious. Do you think it was obvious to them? When they were born, there was an agora there. When they were in their 20s, there was an agora there. Now they're in their 40s, there's an agora there. It's always been there. It just feels like, I don't know, culture. Just the way Ephesians do it. He had altars set up throughout Ephesus designated for emperor worship. Some other things about Domitian. 
He insisted on being addressed by all who approached him as my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. By decree, he had all imperial statues that were representative of him made of gold. His letters began. They actually have his letters. They began with the words, Your Lord and your God commands you. Do you hear this similarity? My Lord and my God, and your Lord and God commands you. These are the letters in the book of Revelation. He had a royal Czech choir with 24 singers. They sang, Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor, glory, and praise. This was going on in Ephesus in the first century, right before the book of Revelation was even written. Do you think there was a little pressure upon the Ephesians? He had coins minted. Those coins have survived and they're in that book in the library. Suzanne, I'm hoping you get a couple requests for that book in the library. He had coins minted with the saying, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. A little pressure upon them. Cruel beyond measure, a group of people called Nazameans issued a royal decree that simply said this, I cease to permit them to exist. So the soldiers killed them all. Do you think you live in tough times? It's blessings all around us have made us feel secure. But the same devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy just because Sennacherib is not standing outside your house every day yelling at you does not mean there is not pressure upon you every day to conform to something just because you're an American. We need to examine our lives. We need to let the Spirit of Jesus move in our lives and say, this is okay and this is not okay. And then we need to have the patience with one another to realize we're coming to different conclusions at different times and we may never come to the same conclusion. It's not okay for me to put a prohibition on you. You're not my servant. You're his servant. It's not okay for you to judge a freedom in my life. I'm not your servant. I'm his servant. But at the same time, all of us with fear and trembling better be wrestling with these issues. I want to tell you about the Domitian Games. Then we're going to move to the book of Revelation. This is really going to kill you. The Domitian Games began with Domitian holding out a scroll indicating that he had the right to rule and he was the only one worthy to be emperor. That's right. A scroll in his hand that indicated he alone had the right to rule and was the only one worthy to be emperor. Then all the rulers of all of the provinces would come and remember there's a stadium there that all of the people are coming to see, and he would say, this I have for you, and yet this I have against you. This was Domitian's special, unique method of addressing all of the people from the provinces. And he might say, this I have for you. You were loyal, and you worshipped the statue. And he might say, this I have against you. You didn't do this, this, and this. And then he might threaten their very existence. He had a worship section during the Domitian Games. He required everybody to be dressed in white. Everybody there to be dressed in white. The priest of Domitian wore crowns that had special names on them indicating the divinity of Domitian. 
the people were commanded to shout, Great are you, our Lord and our God. Worthy are you to receive glory, honor, and praise. Or they could be put to death. They actually said things like, You're worthy to inherit the whole earth. Are you beginning to hear any of this? The highlight of the Domitian games was four different colored horses. I don't know, a pale one? A red one? A white one? Four different colored horses, and they would race around the arena. That was the highlight of the games. At the end of the Domitian games, two characters came out dressed in black and cleared away dead bodies from the people that had been killed there, usually Christians. You know what those two characters were called? Death and Hades. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that insane? Turn with me to Revelation 1. By the way, just a little pet peeve of the pastor. This book is called Revelation. There is no S on the ends. It is Revelation is as in the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have to put an S on the end, call it Apocalypsos. You could be right. All right. In the book of Revelation, starting in the first chapter, check out the 19th verse with me. <coughs> right, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Did you hear that? What is now and what will take place later. Imagine that you're John. You're writing this around the year 100. What is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is the seven stars are angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. Isn't it interesting he doesn't say, I know your creed of faith. I know your doctrinal statement. I was there when you were confirmed as a kid. What is the first thing that God says? I know your deeds. Maybe the biggest lie that's been perpetrated on the American church is God doesn't care what you do. He cares about what you believe. I tell you, what you do is a reflection of what you believe, whether good or bad. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. It's not perseverance if it's not hard for you to do. By the way, if you're looking for a scripture reference for what I said a minute ago, it's James 2.18. Your deeds show what you believe. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I'm sure they still believe they were right. But somehow or another, they didn't do it. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You can chalk that one up to eternal security, right? But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This was a church under immense pressure. And Jesus did not come pat him on the back and say, Oh, it's going to be okay. You, I mean, if you need to take the mark, don't you worry about it. He didn't come to them and say, Hey, uh, it's okay, sweetheart. I want you blessed. He said, You better straighten up. You better do the things you did in the beginning. You've got some things going for you, but if this doesn't change, I will remove you from my presence. That is incredible. If he said that to the Ephesians, to which American church could he not say that? In fact, I defy you to find anything said to the seven churches in the book of Revelation that is not 100% completely appropriate for the American church. What you then find out is that there's two spirits that speak in the world. One is the spirit of the Antichrist, and he's saying much the same thing he's always said. It's counterfeit lies, miracles counterfeit concepts working to drag you down and there's the spirit of God and he is still saying repent the kingdom of God is at hand we have a choice to make sense and it's not a one time choice that you made when you were 14 years old it's a choice that you make daily with every decision you make you put one kingdom first I don't have time to read this next part I want to tell you Revelation the 4th chapter and 5th chapter John the Revelator, I like that song, we saw heaven coming down. He looked into the heavens and he saw somebody seated on the throne of God. You know, there's so many profound messages to that. Can you imagine what it must have been like to look and like Ezekiel before him, like Daniel before him, to see the throne of God? But what was it like to the first century Ephesians? There was somebody in their city. Seated above all of the gods. Chariot-like structure. Who had people meet before him and say things like, This I have for you, this I have against you. He was worshipped. Worthy to receive glory, honor, and praise. The first century Ephesians had seen this all of the time. And maybe this was John's way of saying, I actually saw into the heavens and Domitian is not on the throne. Jesus is. Be careful who you serve. Maybe this was John's way of saying, what is on earth now that you see is a counterfeit. It's not even a real copy, but it is like what is in heavens. But the wrong guy is on the throne. Saints, we need to open our eyes. There is a spirit of the world telling you there is a way to be happy. There is a way to be blessed. There is a way to be rich. Sometimes it comes out of Hollywood and sometimes it comes out of Hollywood-like churches. But I have seen into the heavens... And Jesus is not on that throne. We need to learn to take a principled stand. By the way, the book of Ephesians, who's it written to? <laughs> the Ephesians. Yeah, that's not a trick question. <laughs> if you can't quote anything else from Ephesians, from a little kid forward, you learn to say, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why did he write to them in Ephesians 6.10 that they had to take their stand and put on the armor of God? Because they were in a battle although they didn't see the armies all around them. It was a battle that was subversive. It was trying to come beneath the Lordship of Christ and say you can serve Him and compromise. You can serve Him and still go on the Agora. You can serve Him and still avoid persecution. You can serve Him and be blessed. You know that the Ephesian church met sometimes for six 
months out of the year underground to avoid being killed. I've been to places in the world where people will walk miles and miles and miles to come to a church service. They'll get there hours early and pray. They'll wait till every person is left and still pray. And then they'll walk home. And yet our chairs get empty if it rains outside. Maybe we have bought into a lie. Maybe we need to be reminded that the same zeal you started to serve Jesus with, you must finish with. You remember Hezekiah's word? It was 2 Kings 19.30. There is something that has been planted in you, saints, but it must begin to bear fruit above. It's not enough for the seed to remain below the surface. If you've been in the, in the body of Christ 20 years and aren't producing fruit, we need to wonder whether or not we need to dig around that tree. How many times do we come back and tend it before? It just is not producing fruit. I won't tell you what Jesus does with that. You're a Bible scholar. You take a survey of the New Testament and find out what happens to things that will not produce fruit. So, Eric, are you appealing to fear? No, I'm appealing to love, which begins with fear of the Lord. And I don't think there's enough of it in the church. When I see people sin habitually and come and they'll say, hey, I need counseling. And I say, well, it's not difficult. Don't do that. I just can't stop doing that. I know what it is like to have problems in your flesh. (laughs) I'm not exempt from it. But at some point, you need to be more scared of God then you are excited about the momentary pleasures of the flesh. Do you think that it is some kind of um, dispensation that has happened that God won't strike you dead? Don't be fooled. Ananias and Sapphira are not Old Testament saints. And I don't believe in dispensations at all, by the way. We can have that debate some other time if you want. I see one God working through history. He's always been moved by faith. He's always been calling the people to himself. I want to tell you about two cities. And then I only have one more scripture for you. The first is Ephesus. Forty years after Domitian died. Forty years after he died. That puts us well past the turn of the century when John had written the book of Revelation. The Christians in Ephesus heard this word. They heard the book of Revelation. They loved it. They took it to heart because it addressed their situation. Forty years after Domitian died, Ephesus was 90% Christian. When the people of God take the word of God seriously, the whole city will change. Our city has the largest church in the United States in it. And it's not changing the city in any way. That's not a condemnation of them. What are we doing? I mean, when we're not praying over gay mayors... What are we doing? They changed the city that Satan chose to put his seed in just by refusing to conform. How powerful is that? What must it be like to the spirit of the Antichrist to say, I can chase them underground for six months out of the year. I can keep them from buying and selling. I can put them to death wholesale in the arena. By the way, even Paul fought in the arena in Ephesus with wild animals, he said in Corinthians. What is it like for the spirit of the Antichrist saying, I can do all those things, but I just can't stop this from growing? 
the more I persecute them, the more they love Jesus. I think somewhere along the lines he said, I don't think I'll persecute them. I'll bless them. I'll bless them and bless them and bless them until they have no need of God because it is hard for the rich to be saved. I've got to tell you a story about another city and then we're going to close with a scripture. You can go ahead and turn to Titus if you want. Can't tell you where in Titus because then you read it and you won't listen to the story. <laughs> See, I hadn't always been a preacher. I used to sit out there. All the keys are together in your Bible. That'll help you find Titus. The last city that I have to tell you about today is a city called Heropolis. You can come up here. It's a city called Heropolis. And Heropolis was, uh, is one of those cities that is best known for today uh, well-preserved brothels. What's that tell you about Heropolis? I mean, of all the things that you can go find at Heropolis, you can find everything you would find in the state of Nevada except Harry Reid, right? <laughs> there was a young man named Philip Philip was unique in the ministry of Jesus because late in the first chapter of John, Jesus saw Philip sitting under a sycamore fig tree and said, Wow, there's somebody who has no guile in them. There's nothing false, nothing pretentious. There is nothing about this young man other than what you see there. And when he heard Jesus, he said, Man, I want to follow you. Jesus said, you believe because I said I saw you under a fig tree. You're going to see heaven open and angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man. Jesus was calling himself Bethel, the house of God. I am the house of God. Philip listened to him. You have to understand that when Jesus found Philip, he was not a religious scholar. He had probably dropped out of school. Jews had three levels of school. And the third one caused you to apply to a rabbi. He accepted you or didn't accept you. The previous two required you to memorize all of the Older Testament, all 39 books. They required you to learn all of the oral writings by heart. The reason that Philip's under a fig tree and not with a rabbi somewhere is he probably couldn't do it. When Jesus was close to his time to be on the cross, he said, remember, I chose you, you didn't choose me. This was a reminder to Philip. Rabbis choose students because they have the ability to be like the rabbi. Jesus was reminding Philip, I chose you because you have the ability to be like me. This is important because later Philip's not a little boy anymore. He has a wife. He has kids. For argument's sake, you might think of a family in here. Somebody with a wife and kids. And Philip was walking into Heropolis, but they have erected a new arch. You have to go through the city gates. You have to go under the arch. And the arch says, Domitian is God, and all who enter here proclaim his deity. Philip is having a crisis of conscience. Everything that he owns is in the city. His ministry is in the city. His family is with him, and they have to go in the city. Philip begins to walk around the gate. And I don't know how many times he got away with that. But somehow or another he got into the city without walking under the arch because it offended his conscience. And yet one day, standing outside, refusing to walk under the arch, it was noticed. They crucified Philip on the arch. You can read about that in Fox's book, Martyrs. 
Shaft's history of the early church. But they didn't stop there. Before he was dead, they crucified his wife. And before she was dead, they crucified his babies. But Heropolis is the only other ancient city that within two years of the martyrdom of Philip is said to be 90% Christian. When the people of God take their stand, things happen. If we refuse, if we just walk under the arch like everybody else, nobody will notice anything's different because you are just like everybody else. This is not a story in a faraway place. These are real people. It's not just Jesus who shed his blood for you. Through the centuries, there have been holy men who took their principled stand. And they shed your blood, their blood for you to have the freedoms you have now. And I'm not talking about the freedom to assemble in the United States. I'm talking about the freedom to enjoy God's word. <clears throat> if God wants you blessed, he wants you blessed in that you're obedient to his spirit, not materially well off and free from persecution. Not looking for you to be beaten up. But if your faith would not withstand a beating, it is not real faith. For fun this week, take a Bible concordance and look up the word persecution. Look up the word suffering. You'll find out that all Christians are well acquainted with it. Maybe we have not taken a strong enough stand. Maybe we've been a little too worried about offending people. It's Mother's Day. We're all supposed to be handing out flowers and talking nice to each other. I am more concerned that heaven knows my name and that hell fears this church because it will not yield to the enemy. I would love to say in two years all of Sugarland is 90% sincere Christian. But what that depends on is not just their ability to choose. It's also your ability to take a stand. Why don't you stand your feet? Don't turn that off yet, Darren. I want this one scripture to be told. And I just want people on their feet to honor God's word as we say it. Titus 2, starting in verse 11. You might close your eyes to hear this. Imagine that this letter was not written to Titus but it was in your mailbox. You walked out to the mail and this is what the letter said. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for our blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. Paul didn't write that letter just to Titus. It was written to you. People eager to do what is good who have been purified from all unrighteousness. Mighty God, Lord, we ask that even as Your Spirit is heavy upon this room now, Lord, that these people would not walk out of Your presence without considering where they would take their stance. Lord, we promise not to judge one another, 
We promise not to demand that each other take certain stands. We just want to hear from you. We want to know where in our lives you want us to take a stand. And Lord, if it means that we were crucified on a city gate, so be it. Our light and momentary troubles are not worth the glory that's being revealed. It's easy for us to say such things, Lord. We've never seen it. We've never been around it. But we're setting our mind and our will and our emotions this day upon the glory of your kingdom no matter what comes against us. We love you, Lord. And as we sing this worship song to you and close our service, I'm asking that you would move upon the hearts of the people, that they would know where their stand needs to come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Saints, we'll sing together and y'all can work your way out of the building as you choose to. I'm going to stay here in case anybody wants to pray. If you want to worship a little bit, we're just going to sing a song or two. But if you want to go, that's okay.